Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is August the 3rd, 2022, or Wednesday. I'm talking to you, as always, from San Francisco, uh, perhaps one of America's least secretive cities, which probably makes it a less interesting city. We've been doing a lot of shows recently on secrecy. We did one with the uh, the nonfiction writer James Kerchick, uh, written a really interesting book about the hidden history of gay Washington. It's a nonfiction book. We also did one on a more personal level with the Canadian writer Leah McLaren, has a fascinating new book out called "Where You Begin and I, uh, Where You End and I Begin," a, um, a non-fictional account of the secret life of her mother, which is very revealing and troublesome. Um, but of course, novelists love secrets and secrecy more than anyone else. Did one last week with Aggie Bloom Thompson, who has a murder mystery out. She's uh, based in Maryland, All the Dirty Secrets, a book about uh, a fictional account of uh, the revelation of dirty secrets amongst the elite on the East Coast. But of course, when it comes to secrecy, no one beats spy novelists, in particular the Stasi, the East German secret police force that seemed to turn the idea of secrecy into an art and a science, and indeed may have been the uh, the most lucrative product that came out of the old East German state that came down in 1989. Um, the issue of secrecy has been a staple of novelists, Le Carre, of course, but also filmmakers, The Lives of Others, a wonderful movie about the Stasi and the industry of secrets in the old East Germany. And I'm thrilled that we have a new novel, a very creative, very well-researched, very articulate novel out by one of America's leading spy writers. I'm not sure if he, he likes being called a spy writer, but certainly someone who uh, is distinguished for his writing on surveillance. Dan Fesperman, not Festerman, Fesperman. He has a new book out, Winter Work. And Dan is joining us from just north of Baltimore. Very romantic, Dan, as I joked earlier. Yes. Uh, perhaps less romantic, though, than Berlin. Now I understand why you're a spy writer. It allows you to leave Baltimore. <laughs> well, I lived in Berlin for three years also, uh, only a few years after the time when this book is set. So, yeah. And you, uh, you're you a former uh, foreign correspondent for the Baltimore Sun, so you bring a lot of your journalist skills to um, to the writing of spy literature. I joked earlier describing you as a spy writer, spy novelist. Is that something that, is that a title um, that you wear with pride or, or, or is it something you think is, is an inaccurate way of describing your creative work? I'm fine with whatever anybody wants to call me, as long as they don't call me a bad writer. Uh, as long as they'll read my books, they're free to put whatever label on me that uh, that they choose. That's up to the reader, I guess. But Dan, you've made a career out of writing um, 
spy novels. What particularly interests you about it? Is it this obsession with secrecy? Uh, secrecy, but also loyalty and betrayal. Uh, the same themes that I think fascinated Le Carre, which attracted to me, attracted me to his novels uh, at an early age, even in my 21, 22, or even when I was in college, I started reading his work and uh, really just was lured into that world and the multi-layers that he always provides, the gray areas. I think the gray areas are a lot more uh, interesting than the black and white uh, portrayals that you read in some sort of more simplistic outlooks on spying. Do you think that when it comes to the GDR and East Germany and the Stasi, um, the story is actually much grayer than it's portrayed, particularly in the West. It can be. We're always seeing the Stasi just through the eyes of the CIA, through MI6, uh, through the West, because they were the enemy. And you're naturally going to get that enemy point of view over the years. They were involved with a lot of bad actors and with some terror organizations and whatnot, even in their foreign intelligence side. But I mean, it's not like the CIA and MI6 are blameless on that count either. So I'm sure we've uh, gotten a biased look at them over the years. But what I think everyone can agree on is that they were quite good at it. They were uh, especially good at it in West Germany and at NATO headquarters and in places like that where they thoroughly infiltrated those places throughout the Cold War. Yeah, I've been to the Stasi Museum in Berlin. It's a remarkable place. It is a remarkable place. Uh, It even recreates some of the the rooms that the Stasi operated in. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with the book Stasi Land by uh, Anna Funder. It was a best-selling, highly acclaimed book, which presents the GDR as Stasi Land. Do you think Funder's right? Was, Was the core industry of the GDR spying? Um, well, I think her concern is more with the domestic side of it, where they were spying on their own people. Uh, the characters in my book are more on the foreign intelligence side in the HVA. And uh, in Stasiland, it's mostly her look at what that did to society when so many people, perhaps as many as 1 million out of a population of 17 million, were informing on each other, uh, informing on their, their parents, their family members, their lovers, uh, their co-workers, their clergymen, sometimes clergymen informing on their congregations. It was going on at all levels. And I, I think that that uh, rightly earned the title Stasiland. Whether it was their chief industry, I'm not so sure. But they did. Uh, they were very much in the business of hoarding secrets, both domestically and uh, anything they could gather up on uh, in West Germany or abroad. Winterland is, I guess you might describe it, uh, uh, and the New York Times describe it as a, a Cold War spy novel. It might be described, though, as a post-Cold War spy novel, certainly dealing with the, the end of the Cold War and the, yes. the coming down of the, of the wall. Um, is there an element, in an odd way, of nostalgia for the certainties of the Cold War in your book, or at least amongst some of your fictional characters? Maybe some, maybe among some of my characters, probably not in this one so much, in that uh, there was this sense of victory. This book is set in uh, early 1990, about three, four months after the wall had come down. And people weren't quite convinced yet, at least in the CIA, that the Cold War was over because the Soviet Union still existed. 
they were still uh, they still knew they had a mole deep in CIA headquarters who was probably spying for the Soviets. So they felt like they'd won on the Eastern European front, but uh, maybe that it wasn't completely a done deal. Uh, you mentioned, uh, Dan, um, uh, you mentioned uh, Le Carre. Of course, mm-hmm. everybody is familiar with his, well, everyone should be familiar with his, yeah. his, this, uh, his, his, perhaps his finest book, uh, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, which also got made into a brilliant movie. Um, it's a book, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, about relations essentially between two Germans. Uh, is your book also a book about Germans, essentially, winter work? Yes, it is. Uh, and it's about uh, Berlin is such a haunted city uh, due to its 20th century history in particular, uh, especially in East Germany. Uh, you went basically from Hitler to Stalin um, in, in a very short period of time. You went from living, living under one di- dictator to living under another, even though the East Germans had their own government uh, sort of set up by the Soviets at the end of the war. Um, so it's very much a book about Germany, very much a book about Berlin and uh, that whole haunted landscape there. You use this word haunted. I spent a lot of time in Berlin. What, what do you mean by haunted? Is it consciously haunted? Is it haunted for a writer like yourself, a historical writer like yourself? Or do you think it's haunted for everyone who lives there? I think it's haunted for everyone who lives there over a certain age because they've been through so much. Anyone who lived through the end of the war, even as children, uh, still has very vivid memories of it. If they lived through the Berlin airlift, they have vivid memories of that. Uh, If they grew up in East Germany, they have vivid memories of that uh, and the surveillance that was going on, the coming out of that, the revelations of all the secrecy and self-spying that they did. Uh, it's haunted in that sense, but if you're an outsider uh, with any interest in history at all, uh, you just can't help but realize uh, as you're walking around, you, you, the names you hear, the places, it's all tied into things you've grown up reading about or hearing about or seeing in documentaries or in films. Uh, Berlin's a very heavily documented city in fiction and in film. Uh, you mentioned The Lives of Others, great movie, maybe not uh, in terms of uh Hollywood popularity, but just the spectacular. I think it won the Oscar, didn't it? It did, but I mean, it's not thought of in the sense of a, a blockbuster with that kind of viewership, but it's a fantastic movie, and uh, anyone who hasn't seen it seen it should. But uh, it is it is a haunted city in that sense. You can't go anywhere uh, without stumbling upon the, the ashes of recent terrible history. Yeah, um, and it, it, it's a history full of, uh, or it's a city full of humor. If if Germans can have a sense of humor, you can find it in yeah. the DDR museum in, in yes, Berlin, yes. which is uh, a, a rather absurd place, an interactive history of East Germany. Yeah, it's a very kitschy place, uh, and Germans love their kitsch. Germans love well. kitsch. They do it very well. Yeah. They do it kitschily without any yes. irony, I guess. Yes, that's true. Your work, though, is not kitschy. You you spend a lot of time on the historical element. They are novels, but as the New York Times said about your previous book, uh, The Cover Wife, mm-hmm. you integrate real people um, into your work. For example, Marcus Wolf, who was uh, the, the master German spy. 
uh, perhaps an inspiration for some of the figures in Le Carre. Why do you mix fiction and nonfiction in your work? Well, I, I, if I'm writing about an era that everyone is familiar with, I think it helps ground you in that era if you bring in some of the, maybe not the top characters, but some of the notable characters uh, in that venue that you're focusing on. And Marcus Wolf, you couldn't really write about Stasi foreign intelligence in that era without mentioning him. And so I set much of this book in an area where he had a dacha and he, where he sort of burrowed in uh, after the wall came down. He went off to Moscow for a while to appeal for help for his Stasi people uh, in trying to get safe harbor. And when that didn't go over too well, he went there to lay low and to receive uh, secretively uh, emissaries from the CIA who wanted to get all of his secrets if possible in exchange possibly for clemency for him. Should we admire people like Wolf in a way? I mean, the the Le Carre book, Spy Who Came In From The Gulf, presents two Germans, a good and a bad German, a classically Nazi German, and then a German who believed in the promise of the Marxist revolution. Are there people like Wolf who, in an odd way, might be somewhat admirable, especially to novelists like yourself? I think at a professional level, it's hard not to admire him because he was very successful at what he did. Uh, he was smart. He knew how to manipulate the right people. He knew how to keep his job uh, in a system that uh, was fond of purges. And uh, so obviously uh, he was pretty intelligent about that as well. So he's admirable in the sense of his, uh, his confidence and his intelligence. As a, as, a, as a spy writer, do you think there are areas that you can't go, especially when you're writing about secrecy, um, particularly in terms of the actual lives of others, of men like Marcus Wolf? Can you speculate legitimately in a moral sense? Uh, speculate about what particular aspects do you mean? I think well, speculate good. about their lives. I mean, make stuff up about real people. It's what novelists do, especially historical novelists, even if it's history of a recent vintage. Uh, what you do then, I think, is you, you try to get it right in sense of you're, you hope that you're making it accurate for the type of person he was, for the way he dealt with other people. You, there's no way of knowing for sure, but that's what your imagination is for. And as a historical novelist, you're looking for gaps in the historical record uh, and that you are going to fill in yourself. In fact, you're always happy to find some gaps in the historical record because that's where you can have the, the most freedom of movement to roam and to make up uh, whatever you want, either about, not so much about his backstory because the facts are pretty well known there, but about how he might've dealt with a certain situation, a certain maybe tricky situation that came up in these months when he was worried about his own future. Dan, you're a prolific writer. You seem to come out with a book every year. Um... Last month, I also interviewed uh, Daniel Silver, New York Times best-selling writer, spy novelist as well. In a way, although his his stuff is slightly, I guess, more literary. Although you're also a literary writer, his new book, Portrait of an Unknown Woman. He told me that he religiously writes a book a year and basically goes undercover and writes that book. Do you do the same sort of thing? How how are you so prolific? How do you come up with so much stuff? I wish I was that prolific. I've written, I guess my first book was published in 99. And it's so that's been about 23 years. And I've published about 13 books. So it's a little bit shy of one every two years. This book happened to follow the previous one by only a year. 
partly because the previous one was slowed down in the publishing process. Yeah, and the, the previous one was The Cover Wife. And, yes. And, and there's some of the same characters like yes. Silver in, in both books. Yeah, that's correct. In fact, the last, the book before that, Safe Houses, also had a few of the characters that uh, turn up in these two books. But um, I do uh, I do shut things down. I'm just not quite as fast as it as Daniel Silva is. It would be a nice way to be, but I move a little bit slow, more slowly. You, your first career was as the foreign correspondent or a foreign correspondent of the Baltimore Sun, where you learned, I think, a lot about this world. Do you think you might have liked a career in the CIA? Might you have fancied being a spy? Le Carre, of course, began as a spy, probably a failed spy in a way, or at least according yeah. to him. Although all spies, I guess, ultimately uh, failed, even, uh, even George Smiley. Yeah. Um, I don't think I would have wanted that to be in that world uh, because you had to keep so much secret from those who were close to you. And I think that that encourages you to keep other things secret and to weave a, almost a false personality. And I think that would be tough to do psychologically. But it is interesting that journalists and spies up to a point are after the same thing. They all want to know how it really works, what's really going on inside, even if they can't really tell that story. They all want to get to the heart of things uh, of behind the big events of the day, except after that, their paths diverge. Spies want to uh, sort of take the secrets for their own value and use them to unearth other secrets, whereas journalists want to take those secrets and bring them out into the light as quickly and as vividly as possible. So there, their purposes sort of part. But it, there are a lot of similar similarities in the business. There are some techniques that both sides use, not all of them reputable but uh, or admirable anyway. But uh, all journalists, I, I know that Joan Didion wrote that writers are all involved in the business of betrayal at one time or another. And I think spies are as well. So there, there are some overlaps there. Yeah, it's interesting, this idea of betrayal. When you think of, again, George Smiley, the the great spy in 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 Le Carre's work, but a man who was defined not by the betrayal of his country. He unearthed people who betrayed his country, but he himself was betrayed by his wife. Uh, I think that's what makes him such a magnificent character. There's a certain sadness to look to, to to all of Le Carre's work, particularly his stuff on 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 Smiley. Are you saying that perhaps the same is true of journalists in our relentless search for truth. Ultimately, there's nothing much there. Yes. Um, well, I think what you've seen in journalism in the United States, anyway, in the last five, six years, is a lot of questioning about the way they go about their business. Because I think for years, there was a doctrine followed that was pretty straightforward, which was the he said, she said, or they said, and then the other side said form of reporting. Uh, but in the last four to five years, when you've seen one side sort of decide to say, well, we're just going to start telling a huge lie, the bigger, the better, the more frequent, the better. And journalists haven't really adapted very well on how to cover that because they don't want to take sides, but they don't want to just report two points of view equally if one point of view on one particular item is a demonstrable lie. So it's become a lot tougher for the business. I think that's the crisis in journalism right now is how to deal with, with these types of people who uh, can't seem to tell the truth from one moment to the next.
That may be true, but another crisis, Dan, and you know this as well as anyone, is that you learned your trade as the foreign correspondent or a correspondent of the Baltimore Sun, a provincial newspaper. Uh, these papers don't have foreign correspondents anymore. Yeah, For a no, young no. Dan Fesperman who will grow up, or would like to grow up to to write about the world, maybe spy novels or some other novels, there's, there's no real entry into that world anymore, is there? You're absolutely right. And I feel very fortunate. I feel many times like I caught the last train out. You did. Uh, when, I, when I got there, because as soon as I left that bureau, the Sun closed it. The Sun used to have eight foreign bureaus. When I was overseas, they had six. They now have none. Uh, as you said, those types of jobs just aren't out there anymore. And I think that American readers uh, and people in particular are ill-served by that. They, they don't give many diverse views of what's going on in the rest of the world. And, uh, and where they're finding it is on just totally chaotic, unreliable places like Twitter, social media. It's, it's, it's just there's a lot of noise out there, and there aren't very many people making sense of that noise. What did you learn as a correspondent uh, on the Baltimore Sun that you think is so essential for this second career as a novelist? I think that there's no such thing as a dumb question. You learn that as any type of journalist and you have to keep asking questions no matter how stupid they appear to be until you're no longer stupid about that subject or that person or that country. You have to listen carefully. You have to learn when to shut up and just listen. Uh, you have to be a good observer. You have to be a good eavesdropper. Uh, I think the the toughest thing about going from journalism to fiction was uh, in kind of letting yourself realize that uh, you can change things to make them fit your plot or your character better. Uh, you aren't chained to a notebook. Uh, you are free to go out and create some facts of your own that go into your book, even though they're not really facts. And, and by that, I don't mean historical fact. I mean just facts about your characters. Uh, and it's just the powers of observation, the powers of setting a scene, the powers of uh, developing a character, except in journalism, you're doing it with the true raw materials. And in fiction, you're doing it with many raw materials that you supply on your own. In my conversation with Aggie Bloom Thompson, we talked about her admiration for Graham Greene Graham Greene was not a great admirer of Mer Americans overseas. You were no, an American journalist overseas. Um, an unusual one, perhaps, not very loud. Do you think that the history of American journalism in Europe, in the Cold War age, was it distinguished? Who were, who, who, who were your heroes? I, I understand that Le Carre was a, a hero as a fictional writer. But were there Americans overseas, Johnny Apple, for example, who inspired you to want to emulate their work? The heroes I look to when I look at journalism in that era when I was sort of thinking about becoming a journalist or when I was at university was uh, people like Michael Herr, who uh, wrote uh, Dispatch. On Vietnam, yeah. On Vietnam. A lot of Vietnam correspondents, David Halberstam, uh, Neil Sheehan, who wrote the wonderful book on John Paul Van. a great, a bright shining lie. I think the generation of correspondents uh, who were covered the Vietnam War, I think are the most admirable wing of American journalists abroad, because after 
of course, you could argue that many of them just took the Pentagon line for far too long, and you'd be correct. But many of them also began reporting what many of their bosses did not want to hear and what the public did not want to hear. And the public ignored it for a long time and vilified those journalists. And they were all proven right when they were writing about what an impossible failure this entire effort was. And they were getting that story by going out into the weeds and into the on patrol and into the jungle. They weren't just falling for the Pentagon briefings. Those were my journalistic heroes uh, among foreign correspondents from the US. It's interesting that you don't mention any of the European correspondents. Uh, I had Francis Fukuyama on the show recently, not a foreign correspondent, a writer on history of liberalism. He is, of course, yeah. Mr. End of History. Yes. Um, do you think that Americans generally missed them, America, and not just American correspondents, but they missed the real story in Berlin? I, I did a, a movie a couple of years ago. I made a movie about uh, the crisis of democracy, um, and I went, um, I went to Berlin. Um, I went to uh, Dresden uh, to uh, stand outside the uh, the uh, the building where Vladimir Putin was a if not a Stasi agent, a KGB agent. Why did we miss what really happened at the end of the Cold War? Not just American correspondents, but most people in general. I mean, why were they caught so off guard when everything collapsed so quickly? Or well, why did we treat it as a Hollywood ending? We we did a show actually on Hollywood endings uh, yeah. uh, on a. Uh, uh, on uh, on uh, Harvey Weinstein, of course, a Hollywood ending in a vulgar sense. But um, why did we treat the coming down? And I know we all know the answer to this, but why did we treat it as a Hollywood story of this end of history, good ending where communism finally falls? We missed the fact that Vladimir Putin was lurking uh, in the shadows, angry, resentful, plotting how to fight back, right? We did, but I don't think even Vladimir Putin could have told you at that point what this all meant. I think he probably had, and he had deep worries that it was a total loss at that point. And that's what people like Marcus Wolf believed as well, because they went to Moscow and they couldn't get an audience with Gorbachev. Uh, basically, their KGB friends were telling them, we can't do anything for you. That's what they told Putin when he called in when the mob was ransacking Stasi headquarters across the street from where his offices were. And they were turning on his office next and he went out and confronted them. And when he phoned his boss's uh, regional, in the regional office, they said, you're on your own. Moscow will not lift a finger for you. So I think it was pretty easy to reach that conclusion because even the people on the other side were reaching that at the time. Uh, it always takes time for these things to fall out and human beings aren't very good at seeing uh, what this is going to mean uh, 10 or even five years down the road. Uh, again, you don't need me to tell you this, Dan, but as the wall was falling in 1989, a young English uh, scientist, Tim Berners-Lee, was inventing the internet down the road from Berlin in, um, in Geneva. And of course, now what we have is the beginnings of what some people call uh, surveillance capitalism. I've written about it, lots of books, uh, Shoshana Zuboff, for example. Do you think there is a strange parallel, sort of uncanny connection between the collapse of the wall, the end of the Stasi and the surveillance 
state that it was peddling and the rise of the Western internet with a much more sophisticated kind of surveillance system, which of course the Chinese now are perfecting and American companies like Google and Facebook seem to be also uh, using to watch us all the time. Yeah, I, we're we're very good at spying on ourselves now. Uh, who needs uh, who needs the Stasi when you've got this little green eye on your computer screen looking back at you, and you you don't know how many people are looking at you if you don't take care of that. Uh, every time you have a keystroke on your keyboard or click the mouse, uh, it's being picked up at who knows how many places. Anytime you enable cookies, as you're constantly being asked to do. Uh, you're basically opening another window for many more merchandisers and who knows who else uh, to look into your doings and your private affairs. So, uh, yeah, and, and there is a conversation in winter work where um, Marcus Wolf is talking to one of his American counterparts, and they are marveling at some of the possibilities that loom in the near distance about how uh, nothing is really going to be secret anymore. So perhaps, Dan, your next book will be in Northern California, in Silicon Valley. Maybe that's the new <laughs> Berlin. Maybe, maybe. But it's uh, not many walls out there, though. They're already torn down. No, different kinds of walls. Anyway, congratulations on this wonderful new work, uh, Winter Work by Dan Festerman, uh, continuing your, your tradition of writing important literary historical work on a, a very important moment in history. What else should people be reading, Dan, in addition to your new book? Uh, I, I'm a huge fan of uh, Mick Herron's novels, and I just finished his latest uh, uh, Bad Actors with the Slow Horses uh, series of inept British spies. Uh, inept, are Dan? Are we ever inept? Uh, <laughs> yes, yes. The whole world is inept. And yeah, that's particularly the Americans and the British, though. We, we, I think we specialize in ineptness. Yes, and uh, that's true, especially in the last five years, maybe, but uh, and all the time. But um, his books are the type that uh, the moment they're out, I'm going to go pick them up because uh, they're the way to get him on the show. Do you know him? Uh, I don't know him, but uh, if you do get him on the show, I'll definitely be watching. But uh, he's quite good. Yes. Yeah.